Well, welcome, Real Life family. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We are glad that you're here with us. If you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, be sure to say hello in the comments and let us know what city and state you're from. We love to see where everybody's watching from so we can just welcome you in and uh, thank you. We've got some awesome online greeters and our staff that love to interact and connect with you as you're watching the services online. So thanks for watching and uh, we're glad that you're here. Um, last week we kicked off with a little bit of fun and we had asked people to turn in uh, photos of what uh, your church online experience looked like and we're going to show you a couple of those that are going to give you some ideas of what it looks like for other people watching church online like you are this morning and then we are going to let you know that the winner of our church online uh, drawing uh, where we were going to reward them with a fun uh, dinner delivered at home was uh, this photo right here. You know, it's the one that I'm probably not pointing at. But, uh, and we're super glad and excited to be able to bless them with a fun dinner. Well, this week we're back in Acts 16, and we're going to look at a passage today with Paul and some of his traveling companions. And something happens here, a couple of things happen in this passage that give us a chance to kind of look at uh, a common myth, a, a phrase that sort of snuck its way into. Uh, kind of popular modern culture and the way people talk about God and how God works. And I want to do a little bit of modern day myth busting with this phrase or statement here in a little bit. And so the phrase is this, and then we're going to come back to it. The phrase is, God opens and closes doors, or some variation of that, all right? God opens and closes doors. So we're going to come back to that, but let's start by looking at Acts 16, picking up in verse 6. If you are uh, going to follow along on screen, that'll be there. But also, if you've got your Bible with you, Acts 16, picking up in verse 6, it goes like this. Uh, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, uh, we got ready at once to leave Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so here they are. They're traveling through Phrygia and Galatia. The, the Holy Spirit has kept them from preaching in Asia. And when they come to this region called Mysia, they try to go north into Bithynia again. But again, the Spirit won't let them, right? They, they, the Spirit keeps um, stopping them, preventing them, not allowing them from going into these regions. And, and it makes me wonder as I'm reading through that, and it, it should cause us to question, like, why is that detail in there? Why is there this information about the Spirit not allowing them to go into a certain region? Well, couldn't they have just said that they were in Lystra and Derby and they traveled through Iconium and then they went here and they ended up here and that's where the guy uh, in the vision came to him? Like, why do they have to include the details? Now, in order to answer that question, we got to remember that the author of the book of Acts is a man named Luke. And if you recall, when we first started this series, we talked about the fact that Acts is actually the second part of a two-part volume. And the first part was called uh, the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke wrote uh, a report about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then Acts is a continuation of that. And so in Acts, uh, Luke goes on to record all that God continued to do 
through the Spirit. And so Luke is really concerned with how God is working and how God's Spirit is working, and particularly how it affects the birth of this new Christian movement, this new church that's uh, under the new covenant with Jesus' blood, right? And so, so as we look at this, Luke is particularly interested in what is up with the Holy Spirit and what God's Spirit is doing. And so here we have Paul who is recounting these details to Luke and telling him about what had happened and giving him the report. And Luke's paying close attention to what the Spirit was doing. And so as we get this record that Luke wrote in the book of Acts, he is making sure that we don't miss what God is up to and how God works and how God was at work leading and guiding this Apostle Paul. And so that's, I think, an important thing for us to know and why those details about the Spirit were involved in there. And here's where we start to get a glimpse of how this statement, this idea that God opens and closes doors, it starts to leak in uh, to how we think about how God works, how we imagine how God might work. And um, the idea that God opens and closes doors is an interesting one, and it creates some problems for us. Um, really, the problems with that statement are twofold. Number one, it's not in the text, right? It's not scripture. Number two, it's actually rooted in a, a non-Christian philosophy called fatalism. And fatalism is a, a belief that everything happens um, because it was fated. Like there's no changing the way everything was designed to come out. Like th there's nothing you can do about it. Everything happens the way it was meant to happen, right? And so you can start to see some of the problems that could arise from this way of thinking, right? First of all, it's a pretty hopeless way of thinking. It, it's sort of like you, you start to imagine how would that play out? And so it's like, well, a really good friend of mine got very sick and almost died. And it's like, well, what's the answer to that? Well, it was just meant to be. It was fate. That was, that was the way the universe designed his life to go. And it's like, well, my neighbor uh, has been really just working hard and, and going up the food chain at work, and they've been promoted multiple times. And here I just find that I'm uh, looked over time after time for uh, you know advancement in my career. And, it's, and so you start to think like, well, maybe I'm just destined Maybe it's fate that I'm supposed to just be in a dead-end job, right? And there are all sorts of ways that this might play out, and there are all sorts of problems with looking at life this way, looking at God this way, as if this is the way that God works, as if it was that simple, you know, that God opens a door. Oh, it was meant to be. That God closes a door. Oh, it wasn't meant to be, right? One of the big problems with this kind of view or perspective leaking into how we imagine uh, God works and how God's Spirit works is that it really gives us a, a wimpy, shallow faith and it, it makes more God out to be more like a, a weird genie in a bottle than really the loving Father who's engaged in our lives and, and concerned with our well-being and and actively pursuing us, it, it, it gives, them, gives us a wrong picture of really who God is. And it, it sets aside really important biblical concepts like perseverance and patience and, and long-suffering. You see, Paul and the apostles, they exemplified perseverance. They, they had this tenacity to, to stick with God 
and to stick with uh, where God was leading them and how God was guiding them and their call like, like nobody else to keep going and stay the course. And, and in our passage this morning, Paul didn't bail out when he sensed, you know, like a, a, a closed door. It wasn't like, well, that was it. I just wasn't meant to go any further. No, he continued. He didn't stop when he was prevented from going into Bithynia or into Asia multiple times. Um, in fact, Paul didn't give up when he was stoned in Lystra. Like, if ever there was a time for someone to say, that clearly, there's a closed door. I'm not supposed to be doing this. I mean, he was nearly killed. And yet, Paul didn't look at that as a closed door. He just persevered. He got back up. He went back to town. He continued to preach and teach what Jesus had taught. And it's like, what was driving him? What was behind that? Why, why was Paul persevering? We have to remember that Paul had an encounter with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And this encounter convinced him without a doubt that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one that the prophets had spoken of. And, and he was the son of the Most High God. And from that day on, from that encounter on, he did everything he could to make sure people knew who Jesus really was. You see... Paul actually took to heart the Great Commission. These special instructions that, that Jesus left for his disciples. They're the same instructions that he leaves for us today as disciples. We can find them in the book of Matthew. These are Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, verse 18. He says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Right? Paul was all in. He was, he was ready to go. And he also understood the encouragement that Jesus offered in this passage. You see, Jesus, it, he also, he said, go and make disciples, baptize and teach. But then he finished with this encouragement. Know that I'm with you always. And you see, Paul, he took that to heart. He believed that, that, that Jesus was with him. And it encouraged him. He clung to it when he was near death after being stoned. He, he clung to the promise that Jesus was with him when he was turned away in, in multiple directions and in and, and avenues that he tried to travel and pursue and share the gospel and, and kicked out of towns and pressed away from the synagogues, he believed that Jesus was with him and that encouragement carried him on to persevere. You think about the words that Paul said to believers who are suffering in Rome. He wrote words to them, to, to believers that really could have just quit and said it's not meant to be, right? They're, we're not meant to be saved. We're not meant to have a God that's the one true God. It just isn't meant to be. It's too hard. It seems like every door is closed. No matter which way we look, it's, it's just faded. Like it, it, this is just our lot in life, right? And surely some of them must have thought that way, but Paul didn't want them to settle. He didn't want them to have shallow, wimpy faith that turned away at the first drop of hardship. He implored them to hang in there. He actually encouraged them to rejoice when they had suffering. Think about it. To rejoice when they had suffering. Listen to what Paul had to say to Romans who were struggling. These were Christians in Rome 
and the surrounding region who are struggling and suffering at the persecution of the, the people around them. And Paul said this in Romans 5.3. He said, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. It's also translated as rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, Paul's telling them to hang in there. He's, he's saying, in, in fact, when things are hard, rejoice because it's in those hard times. It's when you're going through those difficult seasons, when things seem unbearable and you hang in there, it's those times that develop perseverance, this ability to stick with it through the hard times, with God, clinging to that hope that you have in Christ. He's like, it's those times that develop perseverance, and that perseverance grows. It grows into character, and that character grows to give you strength of hope. And it's a hope that is in Christ Jesus. It's a hope that fills your heart with the Holy Spirit. It's a hope that won't disappoint when people around you look at your faith and they mock you for what you believe, they say that you're ignorant. They say that you don't know what you're believing in, that you're just uh, believing in some made-up God. And why would you put all your faith and hope and energy and why would you commit so much of your life to be a part of a church or a religion that takes so much of your life, it takes uh, effort and energy and, and you rearrange your life to be a part of this thing and they want your money and it's like, what is it all about? And they mock you for the faith that you have. It's this hope in you that endures. It's this hope that won't disappoint. Paul says it won't bring you shame. Even though people around you try to shame you for what you believe, the hope that you have fills you with God's Spirit. You see, Paul is imploring them to do what he himself has done time and time again, to hang in there, to persevere. He believed the words that he wrote. He believed that in spite of everything he'd done in his life, all the mistakes he's made, the sins he's committed, the, the murders he had been a part of, the, the false accusations he had made towards believers and towards uh, even Jesus himself, like in spite of all that, he really believed the words that he wrote. That he knew he had personally experienced that even when he was totally off track, when he wasn't right with God and when he was misguided and living in sin, even then God loved him so much that he was willing to sacrifice his life for him so that there would be a way for Paul's sins to be atoned for and forgiven long before he ever came to the point of asking for forgiveness and you see Paul believed those words they were true because he had experienced them in his own life and seen them played out over and over and over again and it's not just Paul that lived a life that wasn't guided by this silly view that God opens and closes doors this simplistic way of kind of trying to have this easy faith Jesus actually taught his disciples something in the Sermon on the Mount that really actually flies in the face of this idea of fate he said in Matthew 7, verse 7 and 8, he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. You see, here Jesus is teaching us to persist 
in pursuing God. Far too often, people give up way too quick with these half-hearted efforts to pursue God. And they, they just cave and say, well, it just must be fate, right? It must be a closed door. Their perseverance muscles are weak and fatigued or never developed. You see, knowing God takes faith and focus and follow through. And Jesus assures us that it's worth it, that there will be a reward, right? And it's not just Paul and Jesus that live this way. The Bible's full of believers that that didn't live by this open and closed door policy that so many have adopted nowadays. Did, did David tell his friends, you know, I've been anointed king, but it doesn't seem like Saul really wants me to be king, and so it sort of feels like a closed door. Maybe, maybe they got it wrong, right? Did, did the apostles, when they faced persecution after persecution after persecution, did they look at it and say, oh, that's a closed door? This wasn't what I was meant for. This wasn't the way my life was supposed to turn out. We'll just, I'll throw in the towel. Pharaoh refused to let God's people go on the first nine plagues. You don't see Moses and Aaron going back to God and going, listen, we've tried everything. We've done everything you said. You've done everything you told us to do. And every time it just feels like it's just a closed door after closed door, like clearly this isn't what the right plan. This isn't going to work. This isn't what you want us to do, God, right? Were they bargaining with God saying it's over? We're just doomed to live in Egypt forever. That's not what happened. And the thing is, we could go on and on and on with examples of people then in scripture that didn't live that way. And I know the same thing has been true in my life as well. Um, I want to share a little bit of my story and kind of how I got into ministry. And it was a story that was full of closed doors. And uh, without perseverance and tenacity, I certainly wouldn't be in ministry and wouldn't be in ministry full time today uh, for so many reasons. But I want to share you a, with you a little bit of the background and how I ended up here, because I think it kind of ties into um, giving you just a real life example of um, kind of not following the God opens doors, closes doors as your philosophy of how God works, right? So back in 1999, uh, I began going to church like legit, real. And, uh, and then it was probably about 2002, moved over to Idaho and started attending real life in Post Falls uh, early on there. And I met Jim and Aaron and our kids all hung out because they did little kids wrestling together when they were just small uh, little people. And so those of you that know Noah, uh, as a part of our church, my youngest son, who's 19. I mean, he was just a small little guy back then. And, and Jim invited me uh, somewhere along the way early on to be a part of a study called Experiencing God. And it was at this ridiculous hour, six o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday morning at Sherry's in Coeur d'Alene. And, and it was really the first time that I'd ever taken digging into God's word seriously and being a part of a study like this not just on my own, but actually with other guys where we were getting together and, and discussing what we had learned and pushing and stretching each other. And it was, it was through that time that I really started to learn how to follow God and how God works and uh, how to listen to God. And sometime after that, probably about a year or so after that, I've been pretty involved in the church and, and studying and learning and, and just kind of getting my feet wet with growing as a Christian. And all of a sudden I start having all these kind of I don't know, for lack of a better word, daydreams, just pondering uh, about 
doing youth ministry and being involved in working with kids. And, and I don't really know where it came from because I didn't grow up in church. And not only did I not grow up in church, I certainly had never been to a youth group. I've never been in a youth ministry, seen one, been to one, really truly had no idea what even happened at a youth group. But I kept having these ideas, these thoughts that I was supposed to be in youth ministry to the point where I would wake up late at night and, and have thoughts in my head about youth group ideas or game activities or some event that I would want to do. And it was like I couldn't go back to bed unless I like wrote that stuff down. And so I have all these pages and notes and random scraps of ideas for youth ministry. And yet here I am working in sales at the time. And so finally I figure it's it's time to go and talk to Jim and Aaron about it. And so luckily I, we we're friends and our kids were friends outside of church stuff. And so I felt safe and comfortable to go talk to the guys. And, and I thought, well, this is sort of a formal thing that I need to talk to him about. So I'm going to make an appointment. And so I, I call the church and I make an appointment and little did I know at the time, normally you don't uh, make an appointment with the pastor unless there's something like serious or there's a problem or there's some major uh, hard thing going on in your life. And so like, I know that now, uh, I didn't know then that when I walked in to go meet with them, they were sort of anticipating something must be wrong. Something bad must be happening. Otherwise, why would you be making this formal appointment when we were sort of all friends? And so I go in, they're expecting something wrong and, and, you know, they're like, what's going on? And, and, you know, what, what's you okay? What's happening? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm fine. It's just that God's up to something with me. And I, and I'm like, I, uh, but, and I kind of stumble over my words. I was uncomfortable. I was super nervous. <laughs> I thought I, I personally thought I was a little bit crazy. I figured they were going to think I was a little bit crazy. And then finally I just spit it out. Finally just spit it out and say, okay, here's the deal. I think God is telling me really clearly that I am supposed to be the middle school youth pastor here at real life. And they sort of both got quiet and sort of looked at each other and looked back at me. And, you know, I think Jim said something like, okay, well, that's nice, you know. And then I shared with him a little bit more of why, you know, I had thought that and what God had been doing and, and how God was stirring me and where these ideas were coming from. And, and Jim just looked at me and he said something like, you, you have to understand something. You just, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know the spiritual battle that it means for you and your family to step into when you go into ministry full-time. You don't know what it's going to be like for your kids to be pastor's kids. You don't know the stress and strains that this can put on a family, much less the fact that you don't know what it means to be a youth pastor, right? You don't have any experience with that. You've never done it before. And, and so I start to feel a little squished and a little discouraged, and yet I also feel like this is really what God wants me to do. And so Aaron speaks up and says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sit on it for a couple of weeks and pray about it. In the meantime, I want, you to, I want you to go home and I want you to spend some time writing out your philosophy of youth ministry. I'm like, all right, sounds good. And I kind of get all chipper because that, that sounded like I got uh, a second meeting, right? I don't know. And so I go home and what's the first thing I do when I get home? I Google philosophy of youth ministry because at the time I had no idea what that meant, right? And so I look it up and it basically just means like, what's your theory? What's your uh, strategy? How would you do youth ministry? I'm like, oh goodness, piece of cake. I've got notes and notes and notes full of this stuff. And so I sit down and I start typing all this stuff out. This is what I would do. This is how I would do it. This is when I would do it. This is why I would do it. And I just map everything out and I, I'm fired up and excited about it. And I shoot that email off to the guys and we go back in and I have another meeting with them and, and they're talking to me about 
my email and my philosophy of youth ministry, right? And Aaron looks at me and he says, you know, I don't really think you want to be a youth pastor. I actually think you want to be like a family and parenting pastor. It seems more like that's what your heart's desire is. And I'm like, that doesn't line up with what God's showing me at all. Like, where are you getting that? And he goes, well, everything I read in your deal is all about you reaching and connecting with the parents and helping teach the parents how to disciple their kids. Like parents are a huge part of your whole ministry plan beyond what you want to do with the kids. And it feels like you're more of a family guy or a parenting guy than a youth guy is kind of where your heart is. And I was like, that's not what I was thinking. I just don't know how else you would disciple kids without greatly involving their parents. And so I was a little discouraged and I wasn't sure how it was going to pan out. But at the same time, I was like, I've done what I know I was supposed to do. I've gone and told them, this is what God's showing me. This is what God's telling me. What happens with it's out of my control, right? And so there's some stuff that happens in between and, and time goes by. And eventually, uh, through uh, a lot of other cool things, I end up being offered a job at Real Life. And when we sat down to talk about the position, the thing that was cool is I got offered a job at Real Life in the early days, which was amazing. The thing that was not so cool, it wasn't the job that I wanted. Um, and it really wasn't the job I thought that I was going to be very good at, to be honest with you. I actually got hired as the uh, in the early days as the first family and parenting pastor at Real Life in Post Falls. And I just look back at that now and think it's hilarious. Uh, I had these little young kids at the time. I had the not the foggiest idea, I don't think, in hindsight, what I was in store for when it came to parenting. And yet here I am hired as a parenting pastor. And so some time goes by and there's a lot going on at the church. Things are crazy. They're busy. The church is growing exponentially. There are literally hundreds of new people coming every Sunday. And Aaron at the time was the middle school pastor, the high school pastor, teaching bib ed, um, preaching some. He had just tons of irons in the fire and he was wearing a lot of different hats. And so at some point, Aaron calls me down to his office and he says, here's the deal. Let me tell you what's going on. We actually have hired a middle school youth pastor, but he can't be here until the end of August. And this was spring, you know, about this time of year. And he said, so what's going to happen is I'm going to lead one more middle school night. And then you wanted to be the middle school pastor. So guess what? Here's your chance. You're going to get the job temporarily through the summer, through the spring and summer. You're going to fill in until the guy that we hired gets here. Um, and so here you go. And so I said, okay, uh, you're going to be there next weekend. You're going to teach it next Monday night. And he said, yeah, I'm going to teach it next Monday night. I said, is it okay if I go? And he goes, sure. I like knock yourself out. Right. And so little did he know I wanted to go to that next Monday night because I'd never been to a youth group in my life. And so that following Monday night, I went and I watched Aaron lead youth group. And that's the only youth group and only youth ministry training I ever had leading up to that point. And then I went and asked him, what am I supposed to do? Should I do this? Should I do that? And he's like, yep, yep, go for it, whatever you want. Basically, like, just, he was buried. And so it was like, you just go. And so here I had this chance. And so I just ran for the summer. I took kids backpacking and hiking, and I taught them about Jesus. And I, I unpacked parables and Sermon on the Mount on the side of a mount. And I went whitewater rafting with kids. And I had kids at my house all the time with my kids. And we had campfires and roasted marshmallows. And 
and it felt a little bit like a blessing beds extravaganza going on in the early days, to be honest with you. It was awesome and it was fun. And then the end of the summer came and we get to that part where I have to hand over the reins to this new guy that's gonna be here in a couple of weeks. And right when that was about to happen, Jim gets a call from the guy and he had some things change in his life and he couldn't come. And so Jim and Aaron sit down with this small band of volunteers that were holding this middle school group together. There was like 40, 50 kids coming, seven volunteers. They were tired, they were exhausted, they were worn out from doing a lot for a long time. And Jim sat down with them and said, you know, I gotta break the bad news to you guys. I'm really sorry, we're back to the drawing board. We've gotta start over again looking for a new middle school youth pastor. Well, unbeknownst to me until a lot of years later, which was good because it would have just made my head big in the early days, for sure. Uh, I didn't know, but that team of volunteers, those seven people that were a part of that uh, ministry in the beginning, they lobbied Jim and Aaron to hire me. And they said, you don't need to go look for anybody else. We've got the guy. We, we know who's supposed to be the middle school youth pastor. And so they uh, swayed Jim into hiring me and given me a chance, this guy that was untested, unproven, uneducated, uh, unqualified, unskilled, like I, I didn't have any of the right ingredients to be a youth pastor, except that I was super willing and eager and, and it didn't have any preconceived ideas, I guess, that I had that going for me. And so they gave me a shot. And man, am I grateful for that opportunity. Because from that day forward, my life changed forever. My life changed forever for the better. And I got to be a part of seeing literally thousands and thousands of kids involved in our ministry over the years. I got to invest in and help equip and influence and train hundreds and hundreds of volunteers, adults and parents, and, and train them in how to make disciples and how to invest in kids and how to work on their marriage along the way. And just all these amazing things. And probably best of all over the years, for nearly a decade in that role, we saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of middle school students be baptized. And it was amazing and it was awesome. And I share that with you to share you a little bit of the how I got here story, but also to help you understand that, that my story to get where I'm at is, is a story that's full of closed doors. And if I lived my life thinking that, that every time something didn't work out, that God closed the door and it just was meant, meant that it was not meant to be, I wouldn't be where I'm at. Instead, I learned perseverance that developed character that gave me this hope that didn't disappoint that, that Paul talks about. And so I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you feel like God's calling you to. But maybe today's the day that you need to be reminded to persevere. Maybe it's you need to be reminded to persevere in your marriage. That this is not the time to wane and throw in the towel. This is the time to double down. To hit your knees and to ask and plead for God to give you help. Maybe this is the time where you need to persevere in your relationship with your teenager. Maybe this is the time where you need to persevere with the financial situation going on because of job and circumstances. Like there are all sorts of reasons behind why you might need to be uh, reminded to hang in there and, 
and persevere. Wherever you're at, I pray this morning as we wrap up that that's the message you take home today, that that's the, the thing that stirs in your heart, that you're reminded to have this tenacity, this stick with itness, this grit that stirs up in you to, to hang in there and to keep pressing on, to be a, a, a goer, to be on mission with Jesus. So this morning, we're going to wrap up taking communion together the way we do every week. And so right now is a great time to grab the elements for communion. If you don't have them yet, go ahead and go grab them. I'm going to do the same, and then we're going to take communion together as a family uh, before we finish up this morning. Well, at Real Life, we take communion together every week as a family, and when we do, we always remind everybody that we have an open table. And what that means, uh, whether we're at home like this or together on Sunday, what that means for us is that anybody that's with us who wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is welcome to take communion with us. And so be sure and have your elements handy because we're going to take communion together as a family in just a couple of minutes. So uh, this morning, We've been talking about perseverance, this idea that we hang in there and we stick with it, that we have this, this grit to stay the course uh, when things are tough and when things are hard. And there's no better model for us than Jesus. There's no more grit than uh, a God who is willing to go to the cross and endure the shame and the punishment and even death for our benefit, even before we were ready to repent and, and turn from our sin, Paul says that Jesus was willing to do this for us. And that's what we remember as we take communion together each week. We remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He says this was a, his body that's broken for us, so as often as we eat this, let's do this in remembrance of him. And in the same way, after dinner, Jesus took the cup and, and he said, this cup represents a new covenant, which is his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so when we drink the cup, we remember that it's because of the shed blood of Jesus that we can have our sins forgiven. So let's drink and remember. God, we love you. You are an awesome God, and we thank you so much that you give us your spirit to encourage us and carry us along through the hard times in life, to help us endure and persevere. God, uh, strengthen us and continue to help us become more like your son. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, before we get out of here this morning, I have one last announcement for you. Make sure you tune in at noon today on our Facebook page, my Facebook page, our real life uh, YouTube channel, any one of those spots, we're gonna be broadcasting live at noon and I'm gonna be sharing some really cool information about something awesome that we're gonna do in our community. Something that uh, our church is gonna do to bless kids and their families in our community. And so we've got some really neat ways that we're gonna do it. I'm gonna share it with you at noon, but I'm also gonna challenge some people to be a little bit more involved with what we're going to do and so uh, be sure to tune in at noon and watch that and then we'll see you back here next Sunday morning uh, don't forget we're uh, 
back to 9 and 10.30, so whatever works for you, we'll see you at either service next Sunday.